You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Andy Slavitt, the White House Senior Advisor on COVID-19 Response, joins the Post to discuss vaccine production and delivery and the challenges of slowing community spread. Let's listen. Good morning. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Welcome to Washington Post Live and welcome to Washington Post Live special series, Coronavirus Leadership During Crisis. And there's no better person to talk to about the pandemic uh, or leadership than Andy Slavitt, White House Senior Advisor to the COVID-19 Response Team. Mr. Slavitt, welcome to Washington Post Live. Thanks, Jonathan. Good to be here. So President Biden was supposed to go to Michigan today. That trip has been pushed off to Friday to visit a Pfizer vaccine manufacturing plant to recognize the employees. Uh, This particular Pfizer plant has been the central hub for distributing the vaccine. Could you start this morning by giving us the latest information on the president's plans for vaccine production and distribution? Sure. Well, it's good to be with everybody this morning. so when I think we came into to office, I think we were, um, uh, the, the assessment we did was that um, there was no standing inventory and we did not have enough uh, vaccines uh, or vaccinators or locations for people to get vaccinated um, that were that were set up. So the president did a few things. The first thing he did was he um, directed us to purchase enough vaccines to get every American vaccinated as quickly as possible. And as he announced last week, um, we have enough vaccines to vaccinate Americans by the end of July right now. That does not account for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, and it's important to tell you why. Um, we are going to let the FDA make the determination uh, and not assume anything, and I think it's important. This is part of letting science lead and not having the White House push from the side. Uh, but so there are opportunities for things to go better. But like this week's weather proves, there's also uh, plenty of surprises in store. So. Um, we are trying to be um, planned for every event, and we're trying to be conservative and cautious. Over the first uh, uh, three to four weeks, I can't even remember how long we've been here now, mm-hmm. um, we've increased supply to states by 58% of vaccines. We have significantly increased the number of vaccinators, bringing retired workers, retired doctors, retired nurses, active military, FEMA personnel out into the field. We've opened up uh, community vaccination centers, particularly in hearted communities and communities that are typically ignored. Um, We've started distributing to retail pharmacies. Again, 6,500 pharmacy locations weighted towards lower income communities. Uh, So it's been a flurry of activities. I think today we can sit here and say, it's not fast enough for the public. It's not fast enough for what we'd like, but we've now got the ability to make sure we can vaccinate this country and do it in the next number of months. In that answer, you've given a, a lot of ground to uh, cover in terms of follow-up. So let's start with the states. How are states performing with vaccine distribution? The uh, states are. This is this is the uh, requisite American flag pin, and it's got to be facing the right direction. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> it's okay. The uh, so when we got here, um, states had dis- distributed about forty-six percent of the vaccines that had been delivered. Um, that's obviously too low, and that's a reflection of the fact that it was a new process for people, that people were unsure about whether or not they were going to get further doses. There had been no commitments and and very variable delivery. Today, states have delivered close to about 75% of the doses, so from 46 to 75. There's still some variability. Some states are above 80. Some states are below 70. 
Um, but it's but all the states are doing much, much, much better. And part of it is just creating some assurance. We've basically told the states that they will get at least three weeks of visibility into how many vaccines they'll get. And if anything, we're going to try to beat those numbers. We will never come below those numbers. So making those commitments, while I think people are often loath to want to make commitments, um, making them just makes the whole system go better. Because as you know, Jonathan, in a shortage, which is what we're facing, what do people do? They hoard. And so if you don't give them transparency, they will hoard more. So by telling them, I, we will promise you these deliveries, that actually um, allows people to give the vaccines out that they're holding on to. Um, in terms of distribution, the National Guard is um, participating. What, what role um, is the National Guard playing? So states have, uh, and, and we have uh, gone at the federal level <laughs> and fund the use of the National Guard in their states. They are, they are uh, setting up vaccination sites. They are vaccinating uh, people. They are, uh, they are essentially providing the arms and legs and the workforce and the brain power um, along with FEMA and along with over a thousand active military who are out there doing the same. I just saw a video, um, a very touching video of some uh, enlisted military who had been deployed over um, to Iraq who were now being deployed in their own communities to deliver vaccines <clears throat> to their neighborhood. And um, the, the, uh, the enlisted soldier said that it was one of the most uh, meaningful and surprising experiences uh, that he's had. And I think hopefully, you know, as we try to come out of this, people will realize that everybody is part of the solution in some way. And it's very hard for people to, to sit home and do nothing in the middle of a crisis. But I think the president's vision is to engage the public engage all of government, engage the private sector, engage the nonprofit and charitable sector, engage the churches, engage the religious, engage mayors and in, in, in the community, and everybody we will, will come out of this. There's no possible way for the federal government to do this alone. And well, speaking of engaging the public, I'm wondering how are you dealing with vaccine hesitancy, particularly in communities of color? Yeah, so vaccine hesitancy, um, you know, essentially, um, I think I define it this way. Um, people who have questions, legitimate questions, um, about whether or not they should take a vaccine. And if we don't treat them as legitimate questions that deserve legitimate, straightforward answers, then um, you know, we will lose people. So you know, it's, it's, it's all well and good, and I think there will be um, important messaging and consistent messaging about how safe the vaccines are and so forth. But that's not the answer. The answer is a dialogue. It's a dialogue in the communities of color, about their concerns. It's, it's a dialogue with younger people who may have their own issues. It's a dialogue uh, of anybody who has questions. And what we're finding is that many people, the first time, there are a lot of people that would you know crawl over broken glass to get the vaccine. There are plenty of other people who are interested in taking the vaccine, but they want to see others go first. I think they may be more vaccine curious, it may be a good term uh, for them. And those folks are, I think, um, over over the last couple of months are increasingly moving over to the camp of, well, I think I'll want to want to do this. But um, talking to your local doctor, your local physician, um, your church leader, people you trust um, are, are really important parts of that dialogue and then getting reliable answers. Sadly, in this day and age, there is enough misinformation out there that just occurs. And then there's enough disinformation out there which people spark and those rumors can fly around and really, really hurt the cause. So we just want to get people straight answers to their questions. 
And I think that gives me conf- it gives me confidence that if we can answer people's questions, because these vaccines are so safe and so effective, um, we think more and more people will will come on. But it's a very good question, Jonathan, because today we're dealing with issues of do how do we get enough supply quickly enough? But that won't always be the challenge. I think in a number of months it could flip on us and we could actually be dealing with the question of how do we make people comfortable that this is something they want to do? And, you know, Mr. Slavin, another part of the challenge. So on the one hand, you have uh, vaccine hesitancy as a challenge. But then you have the, uh, the the challenge from the opposite, from the other end. And that might be where you could have communities of color that are eager to get the vaccine, and yet they can't get the vaccine. So how are you dealing with the equity issues involved in terms of who actually gets the vaccine? Well, the one thing I've learned in healthcare is the structural impediments based on race uh, primarily, but also based on other factors, income, location, et cetera, but, 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 I, but, I, but very provably with race, um, exists so that if you do nothing, if you do nothing special, um, you will have gross inequities. And this is a perfect example of this. You know, a, a pharmacy in a low-income neighborhood, maybe in a black community, has vaccines. They open for those vaccines. They have appointments that come online. And people who are living far away in wealthy communities have um, plenty of kids with laptops and iPads and iPhones that are jumping all over those appointments. And so you can intend well. You could put the vaccines in the right communities, and then you find you've got this effect where all these people are coming into these communities that have probably not been there ever or for a long time and getting in line ahead of folks and taking those vaccines. So my message is you have to actively take steps to prevent this from happening because at the same time, the low-income communities and communities of color are also communities that have a higher proportion, as we know, of death and hospitalization largely occupationally. And so this, we have to fight against this. We've, we've, we've created a health equity task force. It is a top position. And we have a number of, of not just strategies, but operational activities, getting mobile vans into communities, um, distributing into federally qualified health centers, um, uh, re- requesting and instructing folks to, to play a community um, navigator role to help people find um, vaccines. Mm-hmm. Um, the and and reserving appointments and having uh, neighborhood pharmacies reserve appointments for people from the community. We have to do all of these things and more. And we have some good stories of when you do these things, it works. We had an event in North Carolina, the state put on an event that disproportionately drew from low income people because they reserved the morning appointments and 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 provided transportation and they went through the churches. So that's more work. That's more work for people to do, but you have to do that work because otherwise we will just continue to vaccinate the people who are just clamoring for it. And unfortunately, when you clamor for it, you do clamor over other people and mm-hmm. we, have to, we have to be very, very intentional about it. Well, you know, to, to your point about, you know, when you started um, talking about the pharmacy and a community of color, but it's people not from the neighborhood who are getting the appointments. You know, Laura Jarrett at CNN last week did a story about that very thing happening um, at a local pharmacy. I believe it was in, in Queens. Um, and so that is emblematic of what you're, you're talking about. Um, you were saying before, many people have many people have questions. And so I've got questions from 
um, from folks in the audience. I'm going to go through each of them one after the other. The first one is from Kevin Donnelly in Illinois. He asks, what is the administration's plan broadly around onshoring of the U.S. healthcare supply and specifically about the current PPE disconnect? This is a great question and a big priority. Um, so to take something like um, these Fabrile gloves that 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 are that you know anybody who is administering a vaccine or in a hospital needs to wear. Um, only about uh, five percent of them have been made on shore. Ninety-five percent of them come from Asian countries. And if anybody in a hospital can tell you, um, we're in a we're in deep shortage of those uh, of those as an example. So we use the Defense Production Act, which is an act that allows us to direct manufacturing here in the U.S. And we are beginning to onshore those gloves immediately. And by December, we will be producing a billion gloves a month in uh, in the U.S. Um, and we were we are going to be doing that um, item by item. We are doing this with other items, and it's an important win because we need the resilience and reliability of having these. Um, items here available to us in the U.S. Obviously, more manufacturing jobs is a, is a great thing. And um, so we, we are absolutely going to turn the tide on that. Uh, the next question comes from Charles Chrysostomo in Maryland. His question is, when do you think states will see a substantial increase in vaccine supply deliveries? Well, thank you for the question, Charles. Um, I think what we're going to see is every week a continued ramp. So you know, we've been taking up, um, you know, when we got here January 20th, about 8.6 million vaccines were being distributed to states. Today, that number is 13.5 million. On top of that, we have retail pharmacy and federally community qualified health centers. So there's been a 60% increase already, and I think that will continue. Um, again, barring weather issues, um, which which we're dealing with this week, um, we will continue to see that so that by the end of March, we will have we will have distributed available for distribution to states about 200 million total vaccines. So you, if you if you did the math on that, and I wouldn't expect you to be able to do it instantly, you'll see that by the end of the by the end of March, that implies that there will be a, a whole lot more than there are today. And it's the nature of this manufacturing processes. Um, you've got to basically um, very carefully create the vaccine. Then you have to take it to another facility. This is, I know I'm over answering the question, but this stuff is just fascinating to me and we've gotten into these details to, to do what's called fill and finish, um, which, is a, which is basically how they put it in the little vials, make sure you get the needles, make sure it's all sterile and ship it, put it in boxes, all at cold temperatures, et cetera. So it's an extraordinary manufacturing process. I think it was one that, that the president is gonna go see uh, later this week, hopefully in Kalamazoo. Um, and it and it and it, you know it requires a whole lot of scale. I think we all probably were led to believe that there was a lot more manufacturing that had been done over the last year, in, in anticipation of the vaccines being approved. Um, that there was less than, than than we all thought. But you know, one thing about leading and management, this is the name of this event, is that I would say is you play the cards you were dealt, not the cards you wish you had, and so. You know, it, it. We would love to say that we could triple vaccinations next week, but better for us to be very candid with the public and say it is going to be week over week over week to the point where, you know, come come spring and summer, um, I think we will have um, significantly turned the tide. Mm -hmm. 
Um, the next question is another question from Illinois, Carol Nunns. Her question is, how will vaccines be updated for variants, for instance? If you receive the JJ vaccine, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, can you still get a Moderna or Pfizer eventually? So thanks for the question. It's another great question, and there's a couple parts to it. First is, um, are we making sure the, vac the vaccines work for the variants? And the answer is yes. We are testing right now in vitro. And I think the, the good news to start with is that the most prominent vaccine, the most prominent uh, strain that's come here, the B117, um, the vaccines work work well for the Pfizer and the Moderna. Um, the South African uh, and the and and which which is close to the to the Brazilian, if people have heard heard about the Brazilian and following all this geography, they are um, the vaccines um, are less effective, but importantly above a threshold. And the threshold is, um, does it work or does it not? So it does work, it creates fewer antibodies, but 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 the, but it's most this is mostly good news because they still continue to work. Now each of the vaccine companies, and I've talked to all of them, um, both the ones approved and the candidates, have plans to continue to update their vaccines, and if need be, create boosters um, down the road if there continue to be additional mutants, as there likely will be. So. This is a matter of science adapting its processes and keeping up and keeping track. Now, to your final, very specific question, if you have the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, could you later have another vaccine? And I want to give you two parts to that answer quickly. One is Johnson and Johnson. People may know are, is currently evaluating whether and how how their vaccine performs with two doses. In other words, with their own booster. So, depending the results of that, pending what the FDA has to say, if the vaccine is approved in the first place. There will be um, there. There may be a second shot of Johnson and Johnson. Um, more broadly, can you mix and match? If you have one, can you later take another? And the answer is try to remember which one you had because it's that's what's been tested. It's preferable to have the same one you had before. But if you forgot, don't panic. You can take another one, and the and the CDC says that that, that that's fine in that case. Sorry for the long answer. Look, more information is better than less or none. So thank you very much for that, Mr. Slava. Can I, I want to ask you about testing. It's been reported that the Biden administration is finalizing contracts with six companies to provide more than 60 million at-home coronavirus tests by the end of summer. When will this be finalized and how much will it cost? So um, I, want to, I want to clarify that these are at-home or point-of-care tests. So okay. these are instant tests, some, some at home, some you take at a point of care. Um, the, the cost of the tests um, will vary. Um, and, you know, I think it's a, it's a critical question because the more manufacturing scale there is, the more those costs will come down. But if people are going to take tests on a regular basis, the goal, and we're not there yet, but the goal is to have tests that are available for you know ten dollars or less. That's not where we are today. Today, some of these tests are thirty dollars, um, some are more, and there are some people who are making tests that they could sell for thirty dollars that they're selling for a lot more than that, and that's just not going to work because it. Remember, it's not about testing; it's about the uses of the testing. It's about getting back to school. It's about getting back to work. It's about attending events and weddings and family gatherings. So if you have to spend $150 or $120 every time you want to go out of the house, that just doesn't work. So we need lower and lower and lower cost testing. That's why we're investing so much in these 
uh, in these tests so that they scale, that they have um, a lot of the production capacity, and that they will bring their costs down. Um, there's also been a lot of questions about the accuracy ar around those tests. Uh, are these new at-home tests, or as you also say, say they're at-home and point-of-care tests, um, are they more accurate now? Yeah, they are. The antigen tests that you're referring to um, are, are accurate. Um, they're they're um, the ones that are all through EUA. Um, but it, it, one of the things that I think is interesting is, um, you know, just play this mind exercise. If you had a test that was, you know, 80% accurate, but you, was so inexpensive you could take it five times a week, or one that was 90% accurate, but was so expensive you could only take it once a week, which would you rather have? Um, so, in other words, would you trade off, would we trade off for some tests a little bit of accuracy in exchange for the ability to take it more frequently? And of course, the math would say that you would be willing for certain tests where you're not symptomatic, you don't really, you just want to know whether you can go out of the house, you would trade off a little bit of, of the accuracy. So we get, we tend to get caught up in these numbers, 95%, 90%, et cetera. And I understand why that is, of course, because we want, we want to know for certain. Um, but what we're really doing is we're reducing our risk. And if you take a test five times in a row and it's 80% accurate, um, you've got a pretty good sense of how you're doing. So I don't want to say that these are not accurate enough. They are sensitive. But I also say we have to change our mindset to say, let's make sure that, that we are getting lower cost tests into the system. So then how long does it take to get those test results for the at-home test? Those are those are instant, like 15 minutes, I think. 15 minutes. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Um, you know, Mr. Slavin, I want to, um, in the Washington Post, in the actual paper today on page four, um, there's a, a, a key nugget uh, in the in the story, and it's about the what's happening in the Biden administration in terms of when we're going to get through this and when kids are going to get to school. And here's the key nugget. The Biden administration is struggling to give precise, consistent answers to two key questions. When will the pandemic truly be behind us? And short of that, when can children safely return to school? Mr. Slavitt, could you give us a precise answer to those two questions? So the problem, of course, is there is no precise answer. and. <clears throat> We struggle because you know we we hear people they want to know something certainly, um, and and I and I'll be and I don't mean this in a political way, but I think we've lived for a year with a lot of overpromises, a lot of the solutions around the corner, this is going away, et cetera, et cetera, and I think we are very sensitive and very reluctant to try to overpromise. One of the reasons why I think the public is so fatigued is because no one was ever asked to prepare for a marathon. People were told this is a sprint and it's going to be over soon. And so um, I think the president who um, on, on a town hall this week said, look, he's, he's very hopeful by Christmas. Um, that's a reasonable answer. But the rest of us, um, the rest of us are hired to get the job done, not make forecasts and make predictions. So there's a lot we don't know about the future. We don't know exactly what's going to happen with the variants. We don't know exactly how many people are going to take the vaccine. We don't know a lot of things. And so um, we are trying not to um, give a false sense of security and a false sense of precision where none exists. And I know that makes people less comfortable, but I also know people want to be leveled with and they want to be told the truth. And sometimes the truth is a little more complex and it can't be done in a soundbite. And so I think we're doing our best to be as honest as possible. 
And what you're hearing is that there are no solid answers. There is no precise exact date. Uh, but what you should be comfortable in is that the team is using every available resource of the federal government and the country to get it done as quickly as possible. You know, in a previous answer, you said something that um, um, piqued my interest. Uh, you were saying um, you deal with the cards you're dealt, not the cards you wished you had or something like that. And it made me wonder, were you, meaning you, meaning the Biden administration, were you given any cards? Because I remember during the transition, there were plenty of stories about how the uh, Biden transition team, particularly the COVID, the COVID team, had no visibility into what the Trump administration was doing in that time between Election Day and, um, and Inauguration Day. So put, bring us inside the room. How much information were you getting from the previous administration to prepare for the pandemic that was going to become your responsibility on January 20th? I want to be careful to answer this in a way that is direct and responsive, but not seen as overly political and not um, not unnecessarily um, bad-mouthing anybody. Um, there are very good people that were working on the pandemic before we got here. Many of them are still here. They're career civil servants, and they've been doing Yeoman's job. Um, I think what we we lacked was certainly, it's no secret, we lacked a president who was willing to be accountable. Um, and so we pushed things off to states. And that made it harder for, I think, the rest of their team. And so we had no plan. Um, we certainly had no plan that we were handed, um, which was puzzling to us. Um, there, was no, there wasn't as much inventory of vaccine as we had believed. Um, and there, were no, there weren't plans to actually go the last mile. So there, were, there was a great effort to produce vaccines and get the, get the scientific machinery working. But once those vaccines were shipped, um, that was sort of the end of the job. I think the hard, the hard part here is the last mile, getting these to communities, getting them to people, getting them to communities that really need them. We talked a little bit earlier about communities of color, but there's lots of other communities um, also you know, prisons, homeless populations, et cetera. So, you know, we declare success when the needle is in someone's arm and they're better. Um, and, and, and so um, I don't want to get into like, were, were, did they, did, were they doing their jobs or not? They were, there were people here who were doing very good work. I think we came in and felt that we had to put together a plan, level with the public. Uh, we have we have the blessing of having a very supportive president and vice president, a very inquisitive president and vice president who want to know all these details. Um, that makes it easier for us because um, we know the president cares, and he's brought in, um, I think, some amazing people. Um, not not talking about myself, but the the other people that 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 are working on this are some of the best in the world. So it's a good feeling to go every day and know you're facing a big challenge, and you know. We, we And we are where we are. Again, I don't want to look backwards too much um, because I also want people who, no matter what their political leanings, to not feel like this vaccine process and the public health process is something that is a matter of their own political identity. It's a matter of their family's health and their community's health. And, and, and I hear you on that and, and understand why you're being very careful about not wading into the politics of it all. So in this last question, because I know you have a heart out at 10, given that there are career people who have been working on this and who are there now since since 
the Biden administration has been in. Have you noticed a resurgence, if you will, in terms of activity and and uh, process and ideas and energy coming from all the entities involved in making sure that we do get through to the other side of this pandemic? We have. I mean, we, I, we heard a comment from FEMA that said, um, they, we are we are getting to do our jobs. I mean, we are now like the sky's the limit and it, it feels good to them. The scientists who we honor, and look, many of us were, some. I was in the Obama administration, others were, you know, we have um, an incredible appreciation for not just the scientists, but all the career civil servants that have been working on this. And I think um, have just been really excited to get back to work with them. And the first thing we did is we said, what ideas have you been working on that you haven't been able to get done for any reason, not 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 necessarily a nefarious reason, just you may there not have been the time or the focus or you, no one asked you the question. And the first handful of things we did um, were ideas that career civil service said, hey, we, we, we're really smart, we would do this. And just enabling them and said, go do that. Go do that, go open up this vaccination clinic site. Um, absolutely, you wanna go create an adaptive process for more therapeutics, go do that. And um, we, we at the White House um, taking the approach to say, um, do your jobs, tell us what you need. We will build a strategy around you as opposed to we will tell you what to do, I hope is refreshing to people. Uh, but you know, we have to prove ourselves. I think the political class needs to come in and prove themselves to the career civil servants as much as anything else, because these are the people that are here day in, day out. They're gonna be here day in, day out for, for decades and you gotta honor their work. As you mentioned in the Obama administration, you were the acting administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. In the Biden administration, you are the White House senior advisor to the COVID-19 response team. Team Andy Slavitt, thank you very, very much for coming to Washington Post Live. Thanks for having me. And thank you for tuning in. Today at noon Eastern, my colleague Jeff Edgers will be in conversation with the award-winning director Ava DuVernay, about her new initiative to promote diversity in the business of Hollywood. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Thank you for tuning into Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.